let's get into the gospel of Mark. On February 26, 2015, the Washington Post described a dispute, a fight, as the drama that divided a planet. This relationship-dividing debate prompted for many uh, what other authors called an existential crisis over the very nature of reality. This debate went viral over a week. The debate, the dispute became a discussion online with over 11 million tweets peaking at 11,000 TPM, that is tweets per minute. The discussion left Taylor Swift feeling confused and scared as scientists rushed to explain the situation. At the center of the dispute was the dress. The dress was purchased by a mother in preparation for her daughter's wedding. And when she sent a picture of the dress in question to her daughter, it led to a divide within the mother and daughter that then quickly rippled throughout the rest of the internet. Some of you may remember, but for those of you that maybe have forgotten or never were a part of the debate, at the center of the debate is this question, what color is the dress? If you are like the LA Dodgers, uh, Taylor Swift, Demi Lovato, Justin Bieber, Kanye West, or my wife, Erin and daughter, Emma, then you see the dress as black and blue. But if you're like Anna Kendrick, BJ Novak, Katy Perry, Julianne Moore, or Kim Kardashian, or myself, then you see nothing but white and gold. And so right now, maybe in the chat, the dress is up. What color do you see in the dress? White and gold, black and blue, Black, we have at least one black and blue. We have who? Black and blue, black and blue. white and gold? White gold. white gold, white gold, white gold, white gold. So I, I, I'll see your comments in a little bit. I'm sure it's just as divided. Is the dress white and blue or black and gold? And it's really weird when somebody that you trust like your spouse says, that it's, you know, how, I thought we saw everything in common. Apparently we don't. What colors do you see? Maybe if you're with others right now on the couch or around the screen, your roommate or family, children or spouse, what color do you see in the dress? See, the dress creates quite a strange experience where something that is as seemingly objectively true as your own uh, uh, eyesight and as something potentially as simple as color seems to be so untrue to others. Why does this happen? It's been the topic of study still over the past five years. Uh, one, uh, one take on it, that's, uh, the good summary of, of where most of science has been around this is uh, Pascal Wallish. He's a clinical assistant professor of psychology at NYU. He explains, it is well known that in situations like the dress where the brain faces profound uncertainty, it confidently fills in the gaps in knowledge by making assumptions. Usually its assumptions are based on what it has most frequently encountered in the past. So when the brain sees something like the dress, something that has enough uncertainty around it about the filter, about the color, about the perspective, what time of day, it fills in based off of our perception, the ways that we've experienced pictures and photos and images in the past. And so what happens is upon seeing the image of the dress, you and I, our little brains, run thousands of subconscious programs to process lighting and color and time and, and direction, all of this. 
But the problem is, is that all of those subconscious little processes are not the same between each and every one of us. And so lo and behold, we come with different perspectives of the dress. Similarly, the audio clip that went out a couple years ago of Laurel or Yanny, where when you hear it and you think that different people hear different things in this one little audio clip, it shows our hearing, we do the same thing. Our brain takes our past experiences and subconsciously puts it all together so that we hear or see something that someone standing right next to us with the same mental faculties, the same whatever as us would see or hear something so different. These instances bring out confusion, disagreement, even terror. There was some person that I was reading over tweets uh, from back of the dress that somebody was commenting on it and just said, does this mean we're all gonna die? Like that was their, their engagement with the dress. It brings out a terror when our subconscious assumptions run counter to the subconscious assumptions of the people that are standing right next to us that maybe we normally trust. All in all, one of the main things that are my takeaways is I just wanna go back to 2015 when the drama that divides a nation is the color of a dress. Oh, the simpler times of 2015. But today, as we continue in our series in the gospel of Mark, Discovering Jesus, we're gonna find how our experience of the dress just a couple of years ago is quite similar to the experience of two groups of people 2000 years ago in the ministry and life of Jesus of Nazareth. And so with that being said, let's jump into Mark chapter five. We're gonna begin in verse 21 today. Mark records, and when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him and he was beside the sea. Then, then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And seeing him, he fell at his feet. He implored Jesus earnestly saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come, come lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And Jesus went with him. And a great crowd followed Jesus and thronged about him. And there in the crowd was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and spent all that she had. And she was no better, but rather she had grown worse. But she had heard the reports about Jesus. And so she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said to herself, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. Upon touching the garment immediately, the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she had been healed of her disease. And Jesus perceiving that power had gone out from him immediately turned about in the crowd and asked, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you and yet you say, who touched me? And Jesus looked around to see who had done it. But the woman knowing what had happened to her came in fear and trembling and she fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Now, while Jesus was still speaking to the woman, there came from the ruler, Jairus's house, some who said, Jairus, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus turned and said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him, except he called along Peter and James and John, the brother of James. 
They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly outside of the house. And when he entered the home, he said to them, why are you making a commotion? Why are you weeping? This child is not dead, but sleeping. They began to laugh and mock Jesus, but he put them all outside and he took the child's father and mother and those disciples who were with him. And he went into the child's bedroom, taking her by the hand, He said to her, Talitha Kumai, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and she began walking for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Now, Jesus went away from there and came to his hometown of Nazareth and his disciples followed Jesus. And on one Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many, many who heard him were astonished saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? And how are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon are not his sisters right here with us. And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except he laid his hands on a few people and healed them. And he marveled at their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. Let's pray. Father, in this story, we once again see the power and the magnificence of your son, Jesus Christ that in his life, we find a portrait of the God who desires to touch and be touched, broken and sick and diseased and dead humans and to heal them, to raise them to new life. We pray that you might give us eyes to see you rightly like Jairus and this woman here display today and help us to challenge and question our assumptions that we may not fall into the same the same territory as the hometown crowd of Nazareth. Give us eyes to see. And we pray. Amen. So as always, before we jump in, uh, notes are available there in uh, the chat if you want to follow along. Sometimes those are helpful for everyone. But today, this story presents us with the problem. And that is that this is a story. This is a tale of two Jesuses. Now, there's obviously only one Jesus and only one Jesus in this story. But what we find in these two, the end of chapter five, and then at the beginning of chapter six, two radically different perceptions of Jesus, kind of like the dress, a white and gold and a black and blue Jesus. We have the Jairus of the woman, uh, sorry, the Jesus of Jairus and the woman, who what what is revealed in their perception of Jesus is that they fall before him. Both Jairus and the woman in our story, they come to Jesus and they fall before him. This is this act of honor. It's one of, it's usually only reserved for royalty and even worship. Common actually within the time of Jesus was not falling prostrate, not prostrate, falling before someone. It was not uh, uh, falling before someone is, is reserved only for God actually. And so whatever's going on here is this incredible act of worship this incredible act of of honor that is happening between Jairus and the woman. Now, on the other side of chapter six, we find the Jesus of the hometown crowd of Nazareth. Now, what's interesting is what is their response? 
There at the end of chapter three is what? That they took offense at him. They took offense at Jesus. And this taking offense at him is actually in, in the Greek that, that Mark is writing and it's an idiom. It's a play on words because what it means to take offense is to stumble over something. The way that you could read this is that they fell over Jesus. They fell because of Jesus. Mark depicts here in this story, this tale of two Jesus is Jesus is the one who people either fall before or fall over. It's a black and blue or white and gold distinction. And like the infamous dress, these two groups are coming with differing sights, different realities, different perceptions of who Jesus is, but the stakes are infinitely higher than discerning the color of the dress on Twitter or Tumblr. To fall before Jesus, we find in this story, is the act of faith, true faith, that is the conduit of healing. Or really, again, to the Greek that Mark is getting at, it's the word for being saved. It is physical healing, but it goes far beyond physical healing. Similarly, to take offense at Jesus, to fall over him is the act of unbelief. And it is the basis, as we see in the story, of receiving no mighty work, no healing, no saving work of Jesus. It's a tale of two Jesuses. In our third week of our Discovering Jesus series, Mark is now again continuing the theme, who is this then? Who is this Jesus? And here we find a question of how do you perceive Jesus? Who is he to you? Now, when I talk about people falling over Jesus, you're likely thinking that I'm talking about those people over there, right? The people of that faith or lack of faith, the people who do this as they're in their, you know, their hobby time, the people that look this way, act this way, think this way. But in this passage that we just read, who are the ones falling over Jesus, taking offense at him? It's the religious crowd in synagogue. The modern equivalent is it's the people on the live stream, you know, for their online service or, or maybe in normal times that are here in the building gathering together to sing and to pray and to read the scriptures. Not only is it the religious crowd who are faithful in their church attendance, it's also those that live in Nazareth, a very, very small town. And so all of these people have known of or most likely known Jesus for decades and so now seeing this new component of Jesus who's been away for about a year or so traveling around the Sea of Galilee, maybe you've heard rumors, but Jesus now comes back to Nazareth. These teaching, these miracles bring uncertainty. It is a new thing that's happening. And like the dress, their subconscious programs have subconsciously, confidently filled in the gaps based off their past experiences, which is exactly what they say in verse three. Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this that blue collar ordinary guy that we've known for years? Look, his, his brothers are right here. His sisters are right here with us. This guy, he, he grew up playing soccer with my kids. At an even darker, or maybe more pointed level, calling him the son of Mary. This was a, a way within this time of to call someone the son of the mother and not the father was, you know, pardon the language, is a way of, of calling him a bastard. This is going back to the rumors that had happened within the story that Jesus was conceived not only before being married, but actually apart from Joseph altogether. Sure, Mary, sure. But now they bring that back up and they go after Jesus' character. 
Jesus continues in verse four saying, you know, a prophet is not without honor and except in his hometown and among his people and among his family, which the ancient version of familiarity breeds contempt. In this story, what we find here is it is those who seemingly should recognize Jesus best who often reject him most. In verse two, it all comes together in them asking, where did this man get these, you know, this wisdom, these powers, this what he's doing? They won't say Jesus's name. Even though they've known him for 28, 29, 30 years at this point. 30 years at this point. I mean, they're rejecting Jesus. They won't even say his name. They won't even ask him, Jesus, what's going on here with you? Help us understand why you're doing this. They're talking among themselves and they won't even say his name. See, this pattern continues throughout Jesus's ministry, this rejection of Jesus based off these confident assumptions that are made. What happens here in Nazareth only prefigures what's gonna happen in a few more years in Jerusalem where Jesus will once again be rejected unto his crucifixion and death. And this pattern has continued throughout history, continues today. Most often with those raised around Jesus, raised around him, the church crowd that see Jesus with two similarly disastrous results. Some of those, instead of questioning their assumptions about Jesus, they assume their assumptions about Jesus and actually fall over, reject Jesus. Instead of asking maybe my assumptions, maybe the ways that I'm seeing Jesus, the ways that Sunday school or youth group or whatever have been given to me, I just need to deconstruct the whole thing and move on with my life. Instead of asking, what are the assumptions that I'm bringing to my understanding of Jesus? On the other side, there are those who never question their assumptions about Jesus. There are those who never ask those good questions, but they walk confidently in their wrongly held assumptions about Jesus, constantly falling over him as they carry out their lives, falling of Jesus of their own imagination. There are two similarly disastrous results. One of outright rejecting Jesus because of the baggage that your own past experiences have brought instead of going after those experiences and assumptions or the one where you get to the end of your life and you realize you were never following Jesus at all, but a construct of your own assumptions and imagination. Whatever your story, whatever your proclivity, there is a great danger in assuming Jesus and falling over him. To fall over Jesus, to miss him, is to miss out in the stories. What we see that he could do no mighty work there. It's to miss out on healing. It's to miss out on being made well. It's to miss out on salvation. It's a huge deal. And we see this huge deal shown even in Jesus's reaction there in verse six of chapter six, that he marveled because of their unbelief. This word for marvel, it's astonished. It's amazed. It's bewildered. And Jesus only marvels here in all of Mark's gospel. He doesn't marvel at the great windstorm. That doesn't astonish or amaze him. The guy with, you know, 2000 demons inside of him and the pigs running off the cliff from last week, that doesn't amaze him or marvel him. This woman that's been bleeding continually for 12 years, her disease, it doesn't astonish or amaze him or set him back or a dead child in her bedroom does not set Jesus back. None of this amazes him. Him hanging out with prostitutes and sinners and tax collectors and the worst of the worst, nobody's sin marvels and amazes him. But unbelief that has been built up by assumptions that have been made, that's the one thing that makes Jesus marvel. He's astonished. He can't seemingly believe it almost. So the question is, if this is such a great deal to Jesus and to this story, how can we ensure that we're seeing Jesus rightly and help others to do the same? 
How can we avoid the hometown mistake? Like in so much of our lives, we often need guides. We need mentors. We need teachers who can take us by the hand and help us. And that's exactly what Mark has given us. He's given us two very diverse teachers in seeing Jesus rightly, Jairus and the woman, both of whom fall before Jesus. Now I say diverse teacher, diverse teachers because you could not pick two completely opposite ends of the economic, religious, social spectrum of the day. On one hand, you have Jairus, who is a man. He's named even in this story. He's a leader in the synagogue. He's got honor. He's married. He's got a family. He's got a big old household with lots of money. And he even has the, he thinks that, you know, not even thinks, it's just his way of seeing reality is that I can walk right before Jesus. And yes, fall before him. Yes, but, but publicly, openly walk before him. What's on the other side is the woman who Mark, I think intentionally doesn't even name her who she is not living in a place of of religious or spiritual honor, but one of uncleanness because of this disease. She has no honor because of the the nature of the disease that she's carrying. Marriage is so unlikely. Childbearing is impossible. She has spent all of her money. She is poor and the lack of honor, the lack of resources, the lack of all of it has left her with her perception of how to approach Jesus. Cannot be to openly come to him. She must sneak through the crowd and not even touch him, but just his garment. These are two very different people with two radically different lives. And yet Mark unites them as a unified teacher for us about what it means to see Jesus rightly in their falling before Jesus. And so we're gonna highlight just two things. There's a lot more we could do, but two things. The first is their fall of despair, the fall of despair between these two. In this story, we have, and and Mark links them in a bunch of ways. Uh, First of all, we have Jairus's 12-year-old terminally ill daughter. And then we have in the woman, the 12-year, she's continually ill for 12 years, not terminally ill, but continually ill. And Jairus's daughter, and what does he call the woman? Daughter. So you have a a tale of these 12-year illnesses over these daughters. He links the stories together. And so out of this 12-year-old who's terminally ill and this 12-year continual illness, they both, Jairus and the woman, are at a place of suffering and despair. Coming before Jesus is an act of desperation. And why is this so vital to seeing Jesus rightly? Because despair and suffering strip us of our assumptions of reality. They take away all of our little preconceived notions of how the world works or how the God, God might work or how my life might work. If I do X, Y, and Z, it'll play out this way. Suffering, just no. I mean, what more has 2020 been to you and I than showing that the assumptions and plans that we make and the ways that we think the world works are in fact not as built out as we thought. You see, when we are at our most vulnerable and needy, when we have been stripped of our assumptions, this is at the, we're, at the, we're finally at the place where we can see Jesus rightly, to see him truly. Because at this point, Jesus is no longer an accessory to be earned. He's no longer an accessory, something that we can just add on to our, you know, for the most part, fairly working well lives. We can just kind of have Jesus on here as the little Yoda in our backpack. And similarly, Jesus is no longer something to be earned because our suffering has put us at a place that there's nothing I can do to contribute about getting anything in this life because suffering is just too big. This thing that's before me is just too large for me to find the ladder to get out. 
It, Jesus must be, when we're in this place of despair, everything to us and beyond what we're able to obtain. Like the woman, maybe this is what 2020 has brought you. You have tried over these past few months, everything in your power to get some semblance of normal. You've spent all of your money, maybe not on physicians, but on Amazon or at Target or at Ikea. So it's the new this that we're gonna get. And you're trying to find some semblance of normalcy and you're giving yourself to all of us and it's exhausting. And the thing is, is that you're just more tired. The lack of normalcy, the assumptions have been more overturned as you've tried to pursue it. You still have no hope. As Corey Ten Boom once put it, you may never know Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. For both Jairus and the woman, their despair, the suffering in the face of the continual or terminal illness in these cases has brought them to the place where Jesus is all they have left. And now they're able to know that he's all they need. At the end of the day, your only need when it comes to Jesus is need. And the problem is, is that so often our lives are built up think, trying to be independent, trying not to have need. And it keeps us from actually engaging and seeing Jesus rightly because we turn him into an accessory or something to be earned. As Jesus put it in his Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek, or that is the powerless, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There's something about our brokenness and suffering that we would never ask it. And yet it prepares us to see Jesus for the first time or in a way we have not seen him yet. The first thing they share in common is their fall of despair. The second is their fall of faith. Both come focused, deeply focused. It is the sole intent of their approach in touching Jesus or having Jesus lay his hands on his daughter. The focus is on touch. Did you see that? If I touch him, Jesus, if you come and lay your hands, that's their main focus. And it's Mark's main focus throughout the whole chat, these two chapters here that we've read. Mark is so, he, eight times he talks about touch. He brings it up. He talks about laying on his hands, of him lifting up the daughter, of who Jesus asking, who touched me? Jesus understands there's something about being touched. Mark is so focused on this touching. Now, why is this such a big deal? Why is Ryan making a note of it? Well, first, as I always try to point out, this is just good Bible reading, is you look for repeated words or themes. And so this week was me just going through, you know, you can just see highlighters and like weird color. I'm like, you know, there's my crazy Bible stuff. But just going through and just red box, anything that talked about touching or hands, as I noticed that was happening a few, eight times. Okay, what's Mark getting at? And then as you begin to think about healing touch, it's something that we take for granted within the Christian tradition. But when you go back and you think about the Old Testament, Jesus's Bible, there's actually no precedent and pattern for healing touch. You, in, in the Old Testament, you would go to a priest or go to a prophet if you were sick or ill and you would ask them to pray for you and then healing would come about. But healing and touch wasn't necessarily what's going on. So there's very little precedent for this. Now, some would say that this actually reveals Jairus and the woman as having a weak faith, that they're bound up in magic and superstition. And no, I, maybe, you know, some of you may think that as you read through that, and that's okay. I'm gonna argue for Ryan's position today on what I genuinely think is happening here. I believe that these acts and desire for them to touch or be touched by Jesus is actually grounded in their deep faith in Jesus as the fulfillment in some way, though they may not see it fully, in some way, a fulfillment of the promises of Israel's prophets, of the Old Testament story. 
If you were here for our Take Heart series, we looked at the bleeding woman with Jesus speaking to her and we pointed out how her, her perception of touching the fringe of his garment seems to be that she's been meditating and reading Malachi chapter four and verse two, talking about the son of righteousness who would come with healing in the, the, the fringes of his prayer shawl. She's been meditating on the words of the prophets, looking for that hope. And now her despair and her meditation on the scripture have come together to see Jesus truly. What about Jairus? Well, this is obviously, this is just Bible reading. So this is Ryan's conjecture, but I think I'm right. Is I think that Jairus has been investigating Jesus ever since John the Baptist came on the scene. Back with John the Baptist, Mark introduced him in chapter one, verses two and three with a quotation from Isaiah 40. Behold, I will send my messenger. He will prepare my, Isaiah 40, right? Isaiah 40, lock that away. And then slowly into Jesus' ministry, we have his first exorcism, his first casting out of demons. What do the demons call him? The Holy One of God, okay? Isaiah 40, the Holy One of God. And what was Jesus' first sermon? Story of justice, you might've remembered this. Jesus' first sermon was Isaiah 42. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He's sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. That is healing language. To set at liberty those who are oppressed and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Okay, so just track with me. Jairus is a synagogue leader. He's a Bible nerd. And he hears John the Baptist, Isaiah 40, Holy One of God, and Isaiah 42. What's in between Isaiah 40 and 42? 41, right? So this week, Isaiah 41, you'll see it on the slides. The prophet Isaiah says this, Be not dismayed, for I am your God and I will strengthen you. That's a physical strengthening language, healing language. I will help you. I will raise you with my saving, that is my putting right, my healing right hand. And you shall rejoice in the Lord, in the Holy One of Israel you shall glory. When the poor and needy seek water and there is none and their, their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them that they may see and know and may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. So, I mean, imagine, this is, this is my perception of what's going on, is as Jairus' daughter is getting more and more sick, and, you know, he's been reading, you know, the newspaper about these, tea, you know, or maybe, you know, it's the water cooler, people talking about Jesus. He knows about John the Baptist. He knows about the Holy One of Israel, this whole thing that's happened. He knows about his original sermon, Isaiah 42. And as the synagogue ruler, he's gone back to the synagogue and he's pulled out of the, out of the, the, the pottery, the Isaiah scroll, and he's rereading Isaiah 40 and then Isaiah 42. And, he's, and then he reads Isaiah 41 and it, and it clicks with him. If in Jesus, Isaiah 40 and 42 have been fulfilled, and if he truly is the Holy One, like those demons said, then that means 41 is fulfilled in him as well. He has the ability to raise my daughter by his right hand. There's hope for my daughter. I believe that what's happening in both of them is that they are enacting. Again, whether they fully see it, like I've just put forward or not, they are enacting, whether they know it or not, exactly what Jesus said after his resurrection in Luke 24, that everything written about me in the law and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So what does this mean for us seeing Jesus rightly? If you're looking to ensure that you see him rightly, you need to ask two simple questions. Am I driven to Jesus out of a deep place of need or spiritual accessorizing 
and religious earning. And from there is my perception of Jesus shaped by the scriptures that he claimed to fulfill or something else. Where am I getting my assumptions about Jesus? Have my assumptions of Jesus been guided by my time meditating on this book in community with others? of studying the scriptures and understanding Jesus this way? Or is it been, you know, some concocted put together thing from whoever out there? And again, that so often you have to do this work for yourself because even me, the problem is that so often people just take what pastors or preachers give them. And the problem is that that can be wrong. And so I'm doing my best to be right. But you have to do this work for yourself. You must, like Jairus and the woman, meditate on the scriptures. What does it mean for Jesus to be the Holy One of God for me? What does it mean that he has come for me based off what the prophets have promised that he would be? Like my glasses, I'm legally blind without them. Mark presents, I can't drive. So these ever fall off. You guys are gonna have to come find me wherever I'm lost. Like my glasses, Mark presents these two the fall of desperation and suffering in deep need and the scriptures and promises of God through his, the, of Israel, that they are like cor- corrective lenses to see Jesus rightly, to see the, the true colors of the dress. This is what Mark presents as the way to do it. But don't miss this as we begin to wrap up. To fall before Jesus in desperation and in faith, informed by the scriptures and brought about by us having our assumptions stripped away. These are not ends to themselves and they are not the end of the story. They are, yes, how we can ensure that we see Jesus rightly. But we need to see Jesus rightly so that we might discover Jesus, experience, touch, and be touched by Jesus. In both Jairus and the woman here, it is their desperation and faith that pushes them to fall before Jesus, to ask for him to come and touch his daughter or for for her to reach out and touch them. You see, it's her desperation and faith that pushes the woman through her fear, through the crowd with an outstretched arm to lay her hand upon Jesus's cloak. And it's because of his despair and faith that he is pushed, pushed through delay, Do you notice that, that his his daughter's dying and then Jesus spends a whole chunk of the chapter dealing with somebody else? Can't she wait? She's had it for 12 years. He trusts Jesus' timing. He pushes through his doubt when they come and say, your daughter is dead. He hears Jesus saying, do not not fear, only, only believe. So that Jesus may come and lay his hands on his daughter. And it's there in the touch of Jesus that healing and saving are experienced and received. It is not enough just to despair. It is not enough just to read your Bible a lot and get a better perception of Jesus. He must be experientially, personally touched, experienced, felt. And get, I mean, call me a mystic or whatever you want, but you've got to have that experience for yourself. The scriptures in your suffering can only drive you there, but Jesus has to meet you in that spot then. And the good news of this story is that is exactly who Jesus is. He is the person who wants to meet us there. That as we step out, yes, maybe not from a perfect level of all of our assumptions being stripped away. And and yes, maybe we don't perfectly understand the scriptures. Nevertheless, Jesus is there to provide healing in a saving work because it is his touch that transforms us and gives us a healing and saving beyond anything that we could conjure up for ourselves. The presence of Jesus, disease and sickness are reversed and death itself is redefined as a nap. 
Soon after the debate of the dress, that it went viral. The dress's creators, Roman originals, they actually put out a press release. And in it, they confirmed the true colors of the dress as being black and blue. Whatever you saw when you looked at the dress, the declaration that came from these eyewitnesses now must be received and heard. Even for me, I know it's black and blue. I, will all, I can't see anything other than white and gold. But I have to acknowledge based off the eyewitness account that there must be something wrong with the way that I'm seeing things if this is what's true. Like the dress, humanity has spent the past 2000 years in a dispute and debate of falling before or falling over Jesus. And like that press release, Mark has filled his gospel with eyewitness accounts of Jesus, seeking for us to see him as he truly is, that he is the one worth falling before. He is the true answer to all of your desperation and he is the right object of your faith. Whatever you may see when you think about or look to Jesus, Jairus and the woman among all of these other stories that we've seen and will continue to see in Mark's gospel are presented as teachers, as eyewitnesses. It is a press release of this is who Jesus is and he is the one worth falling before. And so the question is, will you doubt your assumptions about him? Will you follow the hometown's lead in, in failing to see Jesus because all your assumptions have gotten in the way and instead of doubting your assumptions, you just write off Jesus entirely and in doing so, tripping over, falling over him? Or will you come and fall before him in desperation and faith? Will you allow Jesus to be the salvation that you need? Will you allow Jesus and your perception of him to be informed not by whatever or whoever, but by the scriptures that Jesus claims himself to be the fulfillment of? They are the way that we understand him better. This is what it means to follow Jesus, to be a follower of Jesus, is to keep discovering him as we continue to allow our circumstances to continue stripping us of all of our assumptions about him and allowing our time in the scriptures together to form our understanding. And for those two things to push us through fear, through crowds, through delay and doubt to a deeper and closer experience of his healing and saving touch. And this is all so that we might join Jairus and the woman and the disciples of Jesus in this long 2000 year history of eyewitnesses of the true identity of Jesus. Mark chapter six, where we're gonna be next week, but we'll dip into it right here where it says that Jesus called the 12 disciples and he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over unclean spirits. So they went out and they proclaimed that people should repent and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who are sick and healed them. Those of us who discover Jesus, those of us who experience his healing and saving work, it is never an end to itself, but it is so that Jesus himself may commission us to join us in his healing and saving work. And so this is, this is the whole movement of it, is that we might have our assumptions be turned up by this year and in doing so might return to the scriptures to see Jesus rightly and then out of that place, experience Jesus and his healing and saving work more deeply and then go out into our lives, showing that and providing that for others. Let's pray.